good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. I almost forgot where, in fact, I was welcoming you back to. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 17 on, uh, where are we? Inferno. That's the book we're talking about. Boy, I'm not doing too well tonight. I'm vaguely aware of my surroundings. That's kind of the state I'm in here this evening. Um, all right. Session number 17. We are starting to move our way through the Malabolgia. We're, we're in the uh, later middle parts now. We're, uh, st- we're, we're down into the, the second half of the Malabolgia. Uh, and uh, going to see if I can ambitiously do two more cantos again tonight like i did last time so we'll see about that um real quick announcements before so just a reminder mythmoot mythmoot registration is open uh go to signumuniversity.org slash mythmoot in fact just go to our homepage and you can see you may notice our homepage has changed lots of things there uh all the different things to choose from you can go to events and find mythmoot there you can also go to signum academy and find information about our clubs there uh which are now uh accepting enrollments and we're looking forward to getting those started here uh uh very excited so all right let us jump back into Malabolgia. Uh, you may remember that we ended last time with... We were talking about the demons, right? The Malabranche. Um, uh, the pitchfork demons, right? Uh, who were strange, right? And um, I, um, I wanted to respond... Um, See, I don't think... No, she's not able to be here live with us tonight. But uh, uh, Serena uh, was uh, emailing me about uh, some things. And she had a... I, I, I wanted to respond to one of them. Um, where she was talking about the fart joke. Uh, and sort of the whole tone, essentially, we, you know, that we were discussing. Um, and sort of wondering, like, what if the fart joke isn't a fart joke? And I, what I want to say uh, is that... I, it inspired me to want to clarify something. Um, when I talk about the kind of unevenness, in a sense, of that whole section um, and the way it kind of takes me by surprise, and when I even talk about, you know, the fart joke, I'm not meaning to suggest uh, that I think that Dante is himself completely, like, lowering his tone, like he is going into a completely different place, like the, you know, the serious high poetic Dante that we've been reading all the way along is suddenly like has, you know, morphed into Chaucer or something for two cantos. Um, That's not what I would imply, you know, that he is, um, you know, kind of, yeah, no, as I say, I don't think that that's what has happened, but, um, but having said that, I, um, uh, having said that, I would not want to, let's see, how do I say this exactly? I agree with the, and this is a suggestion that Serena was making, that it's not that he's changing his own register exactly. It's that he is depicting something which is kind of operating on a different level. That if we're supposed to respond differently, or if we're supposed to have questions, or if we're even, in some sense, maybe supposed to feel there's something jarring here, it's um, 
it's the the tone of the demons himself. T- Tony, exactly as you're suggesting there. It's more that he's reflecting the lower tone of the lower levels of hell. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. Um, Timothy Mott says, I can't take Malabolgia seriously if it translates to bad pouches. Uh, no, 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 no. Evil pouches. Yes, they are very evil pouches. That's just what it translates to. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That bad pouches. That's it. Pouches where the bad people go. Like that's it. You don't want to end up in one of the pouches. Um, uh, that's it. That's it. What could be better? Anyway, so yeah. So Tony, again, as you're saying, more along, more along those lines, sort of reflecting the tone. Um, and I'm wondering. I wonder if there is even a way that one could correlate. I'm not sure precisely how I'd do this. But I wonder if there's a, a way that the two of the issues that I kind of have there might be kind of used to solve each other, in a sense. That is, on the one hand, I don't really understand why the narrative is kind of seems to almost sort of devolve into this sort of slapstick narrative that we get there. And then there's also my question about the demons and their role, because it doesn't really seem to fit. Yeah, they're restricted there. So, you know, as we'll see tonight, there is a kind of... Um, uh, a kind of imprisonment in force, right, with the demons, uh, which suggests that, you know, that, you know, that they don't have free range. Um, and yet they don't really seem to fit the overall pattern, like the theological pattern that, you know, again, hell is not uh, the resort home of the demons. It is not the hotel that is run by the demons. Uh, it, the demons are incarcerated in it as well. And we'll see that quite clearly when we meet Satan finally in the end. But um, the Malabranche don't seem to be, and we've seen it in many cases uh, to this point, um, it's a little bit less clear. Yes, of course, they fell into the uh, they fell into the tar at the end, and uh, and uh, that could very possibly happen fairly regularly. And so, uh, you know, they end up partaking of the situation as well. Um, uh, but, but again, I'm wondering. I'm wondering if the what always feels to me like a rather jangling tone uh, in those cantos, and my sense of the kind of ill fit of the demons or kind of wondering how the, like the two things, the more I think of it are, seem to me a bit of a piece, right? Um, the kind of discomfort, the kind of uneasiness that I have in trying to contextualize and understand both of those things, uh, really seem to me potentially, uh, to be, uh, to be connected. I guess I'm not a hundred percent sure how, but I, I think that perhaps they could kind of, um, uh, perhaps they, the, those two issues can kind of uh, uh, solve each other in some way. Um, uh, and yeah, William says, uh, what better way to demonstrate the depravity of the demons than with an action that would be quite rude in polite society? Well, yes, exactly. And um, uh, but it doesn't explain why I, I can't call the first, you know, 13, 12, 13 lines uh, of the following canto. Um, remember, like, the elaboration on the fart joke? It's not just the reference to the fart, right, at the end of the canto, but uh, but it's the elaboration of it with all the, you know, the military signals and all that kind of stuff at the beginning, which really makes it, so, I don't know, 
kind of uh, 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 that's 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 the part. Like if Dante makes a fart joke, that that's where the fart joke comes, right? Um, that it sounds like he's changing the subject, and then in the end, he's coming back to the fart all along. Um, uh, I think that's. Uh, um, I think that I think it's a joke. There aren't Dante doesn't make a lot of jokes, right? Dante's not funny. I mean, he's not going for humor most of the time, and I'm not positive that he's going for humor either. Again, I, these this section sounds, as I was saying last time, almost like like the parts of Shakespeare where people tend to say like, "Oh, well, that's just the comic relief," which always annoys me. Um, it's not like it has no function. It's not like uh, Shakespeare turned his brain off. And is like, and now send on the clowns. Like he did send on the clowns, uh, but he didn't do it for no reason. Um, uh, he did it without turning off his brain. But anyway, I, I, I guess I and I, so even much, much, much less can I accept that kind of an explanation uh, uh, in the context of Dante. Um, but um, uh, Arthur's asking, did it carry the same stigma uh, in Dante's time? Um, you know. Eh, stigma is hard. Um, I think it's pretty plain that the demon who does it, you know, the fart itself at the end of the stand, at the end of the canto, um, is meant to be offensive. Like it is, it's not just that Dante in the next canto is elaborately comparing it to military signals. He's using it deliberately. The demon who does it, the flatulent demon is using it uh, as a mock signal, a mock military signal, which is, I think, designed to be an insult, um, like a comical insult, um, uh, but definitely a comical insult. Um, yeah, and Arthur, you're very right uh, to be sensitive to that, to be sensitive to the question of, you know, what. One should always pause when you realize that you're kind of making an assumption based on current, you know, uh, uh, mores or, 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 you know, cultural assumptions or something. You, it's absolutely appropriate to ask that kind of question. Um, again, the context just within this passage makes it sound like uh, the demon is being deliberately rude, even insulting uh, by, uh, uh, by doing that. Insulting both to Dante and Virgil and to his boss, right? Um, uh, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, now, Michelle, what a fascinating question. Let's, um, let's think about that for a second. Michelle says, I've been wondering why he started subdividing the various flavors of a sin in this circle and the last, uh, when the first several circles just had the flavors lumped together in one big grouping. Now, to some extent, the division of the seventh circle made... So, I, okay. I think I can answer the main, the main question you're, you're asking, Michelle. But I'm going to say in advance that I don't think that my answer totally satisfies. Or rather, I, to say it another way, I think that what you're getting at... I think that you're getting at something that goes beyond the answer I'm about to give. The answer I'm about to give is we've, if we remember back to the three different subcategories of sin, the, the Aristotelian categories that Virgil made. Remember, we had temperance, uh, and then we had, uh, you know, force and fraud, right? We had, um, uh, yeah, we had intemperance, 
mad bestiality and malice, right? Those were the, those were the three subdivisions of, of, of the sins. Um, and, uh, mad bestiality, again, we're not hundred percent sure where that ended up, but, um, but we certainly have intemperance in the top few, uh, uh, circles, right? And we've got malice subdivided into force and fraud, right? Malice by force and malice by fraud. And then we subdivide further, you know, the, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're subdividing further for, by force into the three different, you know, how can you direct the force? Um, so one answer, Michelle is that this same impulse to categorization and subdivision has been happening without, right? Remember, we got uh, so we, su- subdividing into malice and intemperance, right? Well, we did subdivide intemperance into other categories, right? We subdivided it into uh, lust and gluttony and avarice, right? And uh, sullenness slash wrath, right? Um, so we saw that. It's just that each one got its own circle, and remember, there were even some subcategories there, like the avaricious and the prodigal. You'll remember. Uh, so, and there were the different gradients of people, like where they were in the swamp of sticks, in the sixth circle, and all that kind of thing. So, um, I so so we we did see a similar kind of subdivision. It's just that each subdivision got its own circle on the upper levels. And down here, we're squeezing like all of force, you know, uh, malice by force into one single circle. And so it gets internally subdivided into the three different zones. Um, That's, you know, each of which, you know, has different manifestations within it, which could be paralleled to, uh, you know, kind of to something like the avaricious, uh, the avaricious and the prodigal. Um, So now that obviously that completely ignores the question of like, why do it that way? Like why split it up under to multiple circles on the one hand and subdivide single circles on the other hand? I don't know. I can't answer that one at all. Um, but here is the thing, Michelle, that I was saying that where I think that you're onto something bigger than, um, what that answer gives. I mean, so I do think it's it's not like it's just inconsistent. It's not like he was just like waving his hands vaguely at sins before. And now he's like being super precise. There was some precision in his subdivisions earlier as well. But Michelle, I often think about exactly this kind of thing, especially when we get down to the Malabolgia, right? Ten subspecies of fraud? Really? We needed 10 subspecies of one kind of fraud, fraud against strangers and fraud against, you know, the the fraud against people you don't know and fraud against people you do know. Right. Like, okay, like that's a division that makes sense. And I'm sure there are some like different, but like, really, 10 different forms of fraud. I'm not saying that there aren't 10 different forms of fraud. I'm not questioning, you know, whether these divisions are legit. I'm just saying if you had wanted to look this hard, you could have easily done similar subdivisions. I, I, I do think that this impulse to subdivision is getting more intense as we're going down uh, into the lower reaches of hell. And I don't know why, Michelle. Um, again, I, I don't think that the overall pattern is radically different apart from the fact that they're on kind of different levels in a sense. But, I mean, 10 subdivisions of this one. Again, it's Malabosia that gets me. The seventh circle doesn't, doesn't feel that way. Exactly. Um, 
Like, it doesn't feel, like, radically over-elaborate compared to the others. But the, here's the other thing about the Malabolgia. It's not only the fact... It's not only the number, right? It's not, it's not the mere quantitative increase of subdivisions, though that itself is very considerable. It's the varieties, right? Um, sure, you get different subdivisions in The Violent Against God, for instance, Right? First, we divide the violent into the, you know, violent against others, the violent against themselves, and the violent against God. And then we subdivide the violent against God into, you know, the blasphemers and the sodomites and the, and the usurers. Um, so, you know, again, like we're like refining and refining and refining subdivisions and subdivisions. Um, I get that. Like, but get, that feels to me more natural. And the difference is they're all together, right? Like, yeah, okay, there are shades, right? So, you know, he's differentiating the usurers from the blasphemers. Okay, that's interesting. But they're all having the same fiery rain fall upon them, right? They're still all in the same spot, right? There's, whereas in Malabolgia, the punishments that are being meted out in the different pockets are, in the different pouches, are different. I mean, they're just fundamentally different uh, from each other. And, and this, so that, that level, not only of subdivision, not only of sort of clarification, but of, but of distinction, right? Of separation among them. I don't understand it. I don't, I, I, I don't get that. Um, does it reflect Dante's personal priorities, Tony? Like that he was more concerned about fraud or that fraud was a, a sin that he uh, was more interested to explore in detail in this way, possibly, uh, possibly in a sense. Um, Stephen wonders if the subdivision is because these are human sins rather than natural sins. Um, I wonder. I want to, Carrie, that's a really good question. Let me come back to Stephen, your suggestion in a second. Carrie says, I wonder if the other circles had subdivisions, um, but he just ignored them. I wonder. Are there distinctions like of the lustful, for instance? But of course, Carrie, now I'm wondering what the distinctions would be. Like, is it, a, is it like based on the sexual act? Like, would it be like, would there be a subdivision between like those who had committed adultery in their hearts and those who hadn't? Right. Uh, or would it be different? Right. Would it be like adultery in different, con you know, like adulterers versus fornicators versus like, like, is that how it would work? I can't imagine it, though, because, again, they seem to be precious little interested in sex um, in uh, the uh, uh, oh, I say they. Dante seemed precious little interested in the issue of sex and sexual sin when he was even in the sin of the, in the, even in the circle of the lustful. Um, it was about the, the, uh, you know, the giving up of reason to appetite. So would there be like gradients of that or different expressions of that, that he would sort of subdivide? <clears throat> I have no idea. Um, but it, that's an interesting theory to me, Carrie, because of course, now, on the one hand, you can't say the Malabolgia is a result of, like, Dante becoming a more shrewd observer as he goes along. Like, it's kind of hard to miss these different pockets, and nobody would confuse, like, the, the circle in which, uh, uh, you know, they're, the people are submerged in excrement from the circle in which the people are being whipped, you know, and driven along. Like, those look pretty different, you know, the people with their feet on fire. Like, again, nobody's going to really mess them up. Um, or overlook the fact that there are subdivisions, whereas perhaps maybe subdivisions among the gluttonous, for instance, were overlooked before. Um, so I, you can't say that it, it's uh, because he's improved his, uh, 
his acumen as an observer that he's uh, that he's doing so much better or making so much uh, clearer observations here uh, in uh, in in the eighth circle than he was earlier on. It se- does seem intrinsic. It seems an intrinsic difference. Um, even the fact that there are walls, right? The very fact that pouches exist and the very great distinctions among the punishments. Again, compared to, as I say, the blasphemers and the usurers. You got to think, I mean, some of these, some of these fraudulent persons, their sins seem to me a little closer together uh, than the sins of like usurers and blasphemers, for instance. I mean, like, those are pretty different sins, you'd think. Now, again, I, I understand the principle. I kind of understand. Um, I get it a little bit less with usury. But but anyway, I, I understand the principle that he's doing to connect those together. Uh, but surely, like, yeah, I bet you that the seducers from the first pouch used flattery often, right? Um, like, but yet... There's a huge difference between what's happening to the seducers and what's happening to the flatterers. Uh, so, uh, whereas, again, there's not a huge... I mean, lying down versus sitting up is the difference between the punishments, to, uh, you know, for the blasphemers and the, and the usurers. Uh, so, so the, it really does seem to be an intrinsic part of the system that once we get to the eighth circle, the eighth circle in particular... Um, we get these very pronounced subdivisions as if as if a spotlight is being shown upon fraud itself. Um, and here I come back to um, Stephen, your point about um, uh, human sins rather than natural sins. Um, yes. To follow up on that, if we could... I'm trying to figure out how to say this correctly. Um, if we could say... We've already said, trying to understand what Virgil said before, uh, we're, we've already asked the question, why fraud? Why is fraud at the bottom? Why is fraud apparently the worst of all sins? Why is fraud worse than... Worse, worse than why is blasphemy... Uh, you know, the kind of like the, the uh, Campanian, Campanian attitude, um, you know, from uh, Campanius, the blasphemer. Uh, why is the Campanian attitude towards God not the, like, why is, um, you know, flattering somebody else to get money worse than the Campanian attitude towards God? Like, wouldn't that be, you know, like that kind of open defiance against God? That, that's bad, right? Sure, probably worse, you'd think? Then fortune telling or I don't know. Simon, he's pretty bad, but um, I mean, flattery. Again, I come back to flattery again. Um, uh, I mean, I'm not trying to defend any of the uh, any of the sins in the Malabolgia, but it would see. Anyway, so our answer to this before was uh, that. Whereas the other sin, the higher up sins right, are like the, the sins of incontinence um, are sins which are characterized by the natural built-in kind of impulses and humors of the human body running amok, right? 
the things that lead you towards those sins are natural, even in their way wholesome, right? There's nothing wrong with sexual desire. There's nothing wrong with the desire for food. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing even necessarily wrong uh, with wrath. Properly channeled, right? Properly restrained, uh, properly uh, uh, expressed. That's, that's um, the point about incontinence, right? And intemperance. Um, whereas fraud, not okay. No element of it is okay. No degree of it is okay. Like, it's okay to have a little bit of wrath in the right circumstances and in the right measure. It's not okay to have a little bit of fraud, right? It's not okay uh, to, like, do just a little bit of simony under the right circumstances. There are no right circumstances. Um, And so that, I get that. That seems to me to make sense. And you could say that the circle of the violent is kind of in between, right? Sort of in the middle uh, between the, you know, it's, it's the malice, yes, but it's like the malicious sins that border the world of, in, of incontinence, right? Um, one could even say the impulse to be violent against other people the impulse to be violent against oneself, even the impulse to be violent against God might even be in some sense, not in the same sense, but in some sense, natural, right? Understandable, spontaneous. It's, it's, it, it happens. And again, you have to restrain it. There's no, unlike the sins above, there's no, there's, there's no golden mean, Right. I mean, it's, it's like not okay to be just a little bit violent against God. It's not okay to be just a little bit violent against your neighbor, uh, right? You smack him around a little bit instead of punching him in the face. Like, that, that doesn't make it okay. So that it, it's, not a, it's, it's not the same. Um, and yet again, it borders on it. Whereas when you've got the kinds of acts of fraud that we're seeing in the Eighth Circle, um, equally, there is no temperate, appropriate amount that's okay. Um, but there's also, in that sense, Stephen, and I wonder if this is the kind of thing that you're uh, kind of pointing to as well, sort of less excuse, right? I mean, uh, I don't know. Maybe that's not the right way to, um, uh, not the right way to, sh- and yes, yeah, Stephen, you're exactly right. The canonic, that, that is, uh, Stephen cites the canonical illustration of properly, uh, of appropriate wrath, right? Just in case you think that wrath is not okay, um, Jesus is overturning the tables of the moneylenders in the temple is the canonical example of appropriate uh, wrath. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, sorry, Arthur, yes. Um, I understand that as a physician, the word incontinence means something different to you. Um, but... Uh, you will see the connection <laughs> between what uh, Aristotle means by incontinence and what modern physicians mean by incontinence. Incontinence means the inability to restrain yourself. <laughs> That's what it means. Uh, so um, it is uh, less devoted to the elimination systems <laughs> in the body and more generally related to self-control. Basically, like incontinence is the opposite of self-control, essentially. I think that's the simplest way uh, of describing it. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Tony, exactly. That's the other thing that I'm that I was kind of working towards as well. The distinction between crimes of passion and premeditated crimes. A crime of passion can do totally get you into the seventh circle, right? Um, the, I, the eighth circle sins are not crimes of passion. Um, and even that, Tony, even that concept, right? Crime of passion. Um, it's not a good look, right? That's not an excuse. Um, but again, that's what, like, that's kind of the definition, almost, the, almost it's pretty close to the definition of incontinence, right? Your passions inspired you in one way, your feelings, your emotions, you were, you were moved by your passions, your feelings in a particular way, and you did not restrain them. You did not control those feelings, those impulses, um, which come from your feelings by your reason, right? Um, uh, like that's how you, like, you don't punch the dude in the face who just really make you, uh, uh, angry. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that we can sort of see some of these distinctions, but then again, all of this, so this all helps me to understand better and to kind of reconcile myself more fully to the fact that the eighth circle is the eighth circle, right? And why it's done and why this kind of landscape makes sense. Um, what, uh, what makes less sense to me? Well, I don't know if it makes less sense, but what seems less obvious, not that the other one, I guess, was very obvious, but um, is why the, all of the subdivisions? Why do we need to go through and not only articulate each different you know, potential manifestation, uh, of, um, of fraud, but differentiate them massively, wildly, right? Because of the, uh, the different punishments that they get, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's like treating them all as completely separate and independent sins. I mean, there's not even a, there's not even a trend. You know, there's not even a, there's not even a theme. Is there? Is there a theme? What's, let's think about that for a second. As soon as I said that, I'm like, hang on a second. I'm not at all positive that that's true. Is there, is there an underlying theme? Is there something that all of the punishments have in common? Is the primary thing that I'm thinking of here. <laughs> Arthur, my secret approach to getting through, to, like the secret to getting through two whole cantos in one night is to spend at least half an hour on the title slide. That's how you do it. It's well known. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah Stephen. They're all, they're all in pouches is definitely a theme they have in common. I'm thinking my first thought is um, <laughs> Timothy was thinking the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, no, I don't think it works. I was going to say dehumanization. 
But you could argue that all of the punishments of hell are dehumanizing. So that doesn't really work so well, I don't think. And anyway, you could say that some of the other ones are sort of more so the non-Eighth Circle ones. Um, I don't know. I'm going to keep thinking about that, though. Tell me if you guys have any ideas. Hey, I have an idea. Let's get back to the Melabranche. Who got me off on this diversion in the first place, by the way? Okay. Um, no, actually, Michelle, it's totally your fault. Michelle asked such a good question. I, like, talked about it for 20 minutes. Okay. Starting Canto 23, um, which, remember, had ended right when the two demons went into the soup. Well, I mean, you know, the pitch, the uh, tar, right? Silent, alone, no one escorting us. We made our way. One went before, one after, as friars minor when they walked together. The present fracas made me think of Aesop, that fable where he tells about the mouse and frog. For near and nigh are not more close than are that fable and this incident, if you compare with care how each begins and then compare the endings that they share. Okay, all right, hang on a second. That sounds like a dare. Right? Doesn't that sound like a dare? We're going to take him up on his dare here. So first of all, let's remind ourselves of the, of the situation there. Remember how they ended up in the tar? They hooked out a sinner. They were holding him up. And other, like the demons were like jumping forward and stabbing him and like taking bites out of him and stuff. Uh, and then he got away, right? Like in a moment of distraction, he slipped out of his hand and then planted his feet and like, you know, dove into the tar and got away, right? And then the one demon got really, really mad. And so like he went flying out over the tar after him to try to grab him. Uh, and then this other demon came after him and like he pulled up and they like got tangled up and both fell into the tar and then the other demons are all scattering around trying to draw them out. Right? Okay. That's what happened. More or less what happened. And now Dante is telling us it's just like Aesop's fable of the mouse and the frog. Do you remember Aesop's fable about the mouse and the frog? It's okay. I got your back. A mouse, by, unlucky, by an unlucky chance, formed an intimate acquaintance with a frog. I do not want any more information on that first sentence. The frog one day, intent, I mean, I'm not judging. The frog one day, intent on mischief, bound the foot of the mouse tightly to his own. Thus joined together, the frog led his friend toward the pool in which he lived until he reached the very brink, when suddenly jumping in, he dragged the mouse in with him. The frog enjoyed the water amazingly and swam croaking about as if he had done a meritorious action. The unhappy mouse was soon suffocated with the water, and his dead body floated about on the surface, tied to the foot of the frog. A hawk observed it, and, pouncing upon it, carried it up aloft. The frog, being still fastened to the leg of the mouse, was also carried off a prisoner, and was eaten by the hawk. Okay. That's the fable. 
that's the fable. So, Timothy, that's a good question. Timothy's asking, in this fable, the frog deceives the mouse? I think? I mean, I, I look, you don't get too far in life uh, trying to read into the deep, like, backstories and personal motivations of characters in Aesop's fables, right? Um, like when you find yourself asking things like, but what did the frog mean? Like, what was he intending? What was his, you know, what is the psychological background of the frog that would, like, you're probably doing it wrong. Um, but I don't really know, right? I'm not really sure. Uh, are we supposed to understand that this was the frog's plan all along? Like that this is basically just a, a long unfolding murder plot on the part of the frog? Or were they actually friends and the frog drowned him by, you know, like innocently? Right? I mean, was the frog about to be shocked and horrified to discover that his friend whom he thought he was taking on a pleasant swim had in fact drowned? Um, was Is that like what might have happened had in fact he not been killed by a hawk instead? Um, <laughs> Stephen says, I don't recall Rocky and Bullwinkle ever doing this one. <laughs> no, no, this is, um, this is not, um, uh, uh, <laughs> this is, this is, this is not one of the more popular of Aesop's fables. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, do they include this in children's books? I don't remember it myself. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, Gerald, there is supposed to be a moral. I can think of several morals to this story. Where do you start? All right, I mean, this is a deeply, deeply applicable fable in so many ways, right? Um, I love the reference to the fact that the formation of the intimate acquaintance between the mouse and the frog was an unlucky chance for the mouse in the first place. This, of course, certainly proves to be true. Um, but again, I don't think... Um, yeah, yeah, I don't think that it's... Um, yeah, I mean, the moral of the story is not uh, as you... I mean, I, I, Tarlonio takes the conclusion that frogs are evil. Yeah, yeah. The frog is intent on mischief, Timothy, as you say. But again, mischief is a gentle word, right? Like, it's a joke. It's a joke that goes awry from his point of view. Again, mischief, like... I'm going to tie our feet together so that I can forcibly drown you is a little bit past the mischief threshold as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but still, you know, I, 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 I see it. I see it. I mean, the moral is clearly about what happens to the frog, right? How this this the mischief ends up re re rebounding on the frog, right? I mean, if we know anything about Aesop's fables, it's pretty clear that that's what you're supposed to learn from it. Like, don't be like the frog. Not because you're supposed to not kill your friends. Right? That's not the point. <laughs> but if you kill your friends, don't tie their bodies to your person or else you might get in trouble. That, I think, is... No, wait. That's not the lesson. The lesson is... 
that, um, yes, William, exactly. The evildoer is often undone by his own scheme. But evildoer, I guess, sure. I guess. Uh, okay. Um, oh, wow. Carrie, you got a whole backstory on this. Carrie says she learned a, a version of this that had the f- the frog doing this with malice aforethought in order to get the mouse's stores for winter. So it was it was a, it was a malicious premeditated murder done for gain, right? Um, so did he originally befriend the mouse in order to get him off his guard so that he could follow through? Uh, with his uh, cunning and horrific murder plot. Wow. Wow, that's... Um, um, the frog is even eviler than I thought. In that case, <laughs> Tarlonil says, I can't wait for the Disney movie on this one. <laughs> yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, yes, yes. Uh, um, good, yes, William and Tony are both thinking, uh, of course, one way to state... Uh, the um, uh, one reason to state the the or one way to state the moral of this one uh, would be oft evil will shall evil mar yes yes something like that um, uh, something like that <laughs> Gerald wants to know what circle the frog is in now I think the frog was in the river the bloody river of fire uh, violent against others right it's got to be um, uh, murderers that's a big deal. Uh, uh, malice by force. Malice by force. I mean, you could say it was fraud, right? Maybe he's down in the ninth circle. It's possible. Um, it's possible. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, interesting. Interesting. Uh, William says the Barnes and Noble version has that bit about the frog trying to drown the mouse. Okay, interesting. Anyway. But I'm getting, distra- I'm getting distracted because Aesop's fables are really fun to talk about. Um, back to what were we, Dante. That's what we're talking about. So um, Dante says that the present fracas, that is the two demons fighting each other, trying to get the sinner and fighting each other and ending up both falling into the tar, makes him think of Aesop, that fable where he tells about the mouse and frog. For near and nigh are not more close than that fable and this incident. So the incident of the two demons and the fable of the mouse and the frog are synonyms for each other, right? And then he draws our attention particularly, if you compare with care how each begins and then compare the endings that they share. The ending, I can kind of see, right? Um... The ending works for me, right? The ending works for me in that because the second demon was going and trying to attack the first demon and that's and then they ended up colliding and both falling into the tar, right? So there was a malicious action on his part um, like the malicious action of the frog. So in this parallel, demon number two, whose names I don't remember, demon number two... Uh, was the was the uh, was the frog right? And demon number one is the mouse, uh, and the tar is the hawk. In this parallel, um, the tar is the hawk, 
and so the frog the 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 parallel the frog parallel demon is attempting to do in even you know sort of drown right he's attempting to submerge the the mouse parallel demon and ends up getting submerged his own self as a result that's very like the frog and the mouse for sure um so i see that part i see the endings that they share though i'll come back remind me to come back to the hawk Compare how each begins. So I'm comparing with care how each begins. And no matter how much care I've applied to this, I haven't gotten it to work. How are they alike at the beginning? The beginning of the... Um, the, the beginning of the fable is the mouse by an unlucky chance forming an intimate acquaintance with a frog. Right? So, if the mouse and the frog are parallel to those two demons who both end up in the tar, then... It's like those two demons shouldn't be hanging out with each other. Right? Like it's an unlucky chance that the... That doesn't make any lick of sense. The beginning of this fable points to a mismatched friendship which turns out to be a bad idea. Two unequally yoked, so to speak, friends, a mouse and a frog. Their friendship is sort of inappropriate. You can tell on account of how, like, the same recreational activities don't really suit the both of them, right? Uh, seeming thus to illustrate that, you know, mice and frogs really, it doesn't work super well. And it was an unlucky chance that led a mouse uh, to form an intimate acquaintance, presumably with any frog, uh, much less, of course, a, like, <laughs> sadistic murdering frog, <laughs> which would be unfortunate under any circumstances. But anyway, even ignoring that. Um, but you know what that makes me think of? What that makes me think of... Um, What that makes me think of is the if if there's something in Canto 22 that is like the beginning of this fable, it's not the two demons. It's Dante and Virgil and the demons, right? Um Dante and Virgil, on their divinely ordained tour through hell, team up with a fun-loving band of demons who are, you know, guiding them through hell and whose word they take at face value when they tell them about their intended road ahead. I mean, we were talking about how... Remember all the jokes you guys were making last week about how when they 
you know, when the demons say, oh, yeah, trust us, like the bridge is out and uh, things are bad on the other. You, you, you should go this way instead. Right. Um, and we were all saying, like, well, that's sure to end well. Right. Like, let's say if you can't trust it, uh, uh, a demon in the circle of fraud, who can you trust? Right. Um, but. Um, if there's a mismatch. If there are mismatched companions here, it's Virgil and Dante and the demons. Right. They're more like the mouse and the demons are more like the frog. I mean, if they're, they're probably at least as bad as the frog, but I'm not so sure after some of the accusations y'all have been making about the frog. Um, but, uh, okay. Um, Now, that's interesting. Timothy is um, thinking about relating this to the sin, the sin of graft, about binding yourself to someone with a bribe, the binder, the, uh, the, 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 the giver of the bribe and the taker of the bribe uh, are kind of bound together and both end up, uh, you know, in the tar as a consequence. That works, Timothy. I like that a lot. It seems very relevant to the graft situation, right? To the bribery situation. Um, I like that. And that makes the parallel that I was suggesting between, you know, the humans and the demons here, mapping them onto the mouse and frog, a little bit uncomfortable, but uncomfortable in exactly the kind of ways that Dante seems to have been doing. Um, and you're absolutely right, Bruce, to recall that the sinners in the previous canto, in the previous canto, the sinners were compared to frogs. Remember how they were compared to frogs sitting in the tar with just their snouts up above the water, right? Thereby even further seeming to connect. Um, and Timothy, I'm bringing that back to your point about um, about bribery, right? Being uh, 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 being applicable. Uh, here. I like that. Um, yeah, that's well remembered. Um, now the hawk. Note that the hawk gets no love. This fable is sometimes called the fable of the frog, the mouse, and the hawk. Um, hawk, there's no reference to the hawk. Um, that fable where he tells about the mouse and frog, for near and nigh are not more close than that fable in this incident, if you compare with care how each begins and then compare the endings that they share. Um, both of them end up in the same fix. Right. And so, as I said, the endings are definitely parallel. But if the fable. I'm a uh, I'm a very minor allegorist. Right. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not very good at it. Uh, you know, I, I'm a minor league compared to 
you know, most of the medievals. But um, but if I'm doing allegory and I'm thinking about the fable of the mouse and frog and I've got a hawk descending from above, uh, uh, which, you know, ends up bringing death upon the frog and I'm taking that concept and I'm paralleling it with hell, uh, with creatures that, who are in hell uh, and the idea of the divine judgment and, you know, that he keeps emphasizing and stuff. You know, the hawk. Yeah, Tony, exactly. Tony says, is the hawk God? You'd think. I'd think anyway. I mean, I'd go there. Uh, right. To, you know, allegorize uh, the hawk as the judgment of God or whatever. Um, you could do it. Uh, St. Augustine could do a great job with this. St. Augustine is the best. I mean, man, that guy could allegorize anything. Um, uh, he was, uh, he was, a, he was a pro, complete pro. Um, but anyway, um, I, we don't get it. Instead, it's like inverted instead of the, cause remember there was all kinds of hawk imagery, right? Bruce, just exactly as there was actual frog imagery in the previous, uh, uh, in the previous canto with the sinners in the tar, there was actual hawk imagery, um, repeated, re-emphasized hawk imagery. And it was the demons who were being compared to hawks, right? Hawk and a duck. Remember? Um, uh, So it's a bit of a muddle. And this is where uh, this is where I keep coming coming back to muddled. Anyway, I mean, goodness, it's nothing new. How often have I been muddled? Um, but I just wanted to well, let me just point to this. I won't get to talk about it in more detail until later. Much later. Like, if we ever do the Purgatorio, but... Um, uh, no, sorry. Paradiso. But anyway... Um, this doesn't seem to me the own. So, remember how I told you I always get nervous when Dante addresses us personally and tells us to pay attention to things, Right? always makes me nervous because I always feel like every time he does that, I fail. Right. Every time he says like, make sure you get this now I'm making this extremely clear. And then I, I almost never feel like I get it ever. Um, and you know, it's, it's very likely my own failing, but, but I start to wonder he's making a huge production out of this, right? And by the way, this is the kind of reference I love. I absolutely love it when authors do this. When authors say, you should be thinking of this passage in this author. Go read that passage and compare it to this. Because I love doing that kind of thing anyway, right? So when an author tells me, like explicitly tells me to do it, I'm like, awesome. Let me go do it. And then sometimes when you go do it, what you find is that it does not seem to work out as uh, it would appear to look at all. Okay, let me see if I can do this very efficiently. Um, 
trying to do this briefly without having to do a whole interpretation of like the entire Canterbury Tales by Chaucer, but there's a Canterbury Tales passage that I can't help but think of here. In The Wife of Bath's Tale, she is... Um, sorry, sudden panic as to whether or not it's in the tale or the prologue. It doesn't matter. In The Wife of Bath, uh, the Wife of Bath at one point is make, is she's trying to, she's asserting a point, right? She's, uh, she's trying to assert that something is true. And she explicitly tells the reader to go look it up in Ovid, in Ovid's Metamorphoses. Right? She says, uh, she says essentially, don't believe me? Go look it up in Ovid. Then you'll see. You'll see that I'm right. And if you go look it up in Ovid and compare the passage in Ovid that she's clearly alluding to, to what she said, what you discover is that she's wrong. She's misremembering Ovid. It's a, she's, 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 she's got it wrong. <clears throat> and if she hadn't said that, if she had just like dropped the quote, if she just like dropped the illusion and moved on, the reader you know, who maybe hasn't read or heard of it in a long time might be like, oh, okay, maybe. I, maybe I'm misremembering. I don't, I'm not sure, right? That's not how I remember Ovid, but, but you know, maybe she's right. Maybe she's right. Um, but she dares you, right? No, no, no. Go look it up. And you go look it up and you're like, yeah, she's wrong, right? And so her reference completely undermines her. Now, I think Chaucer does this on purpose, Right. And I think that this is part of the big um, uh, point that she's uh, that Chaucer's getting at here. It's part of the game that he's playing with the wife of Bath. There's so many different levels on which he's operating there. Um, this almost feels similar to me. It's not the same situation. But again, he is so insistent. Go to Aesop's fable. It's exactly the same. Exactly the same as this. And then we go to the fable, and what do we see? It's not exactly the same. What do we do with that? Why? Um, and again, he's addressing me. He's doing it again. If you compare with care how each begins and then compare the endings that they share. Okay, Dante, I did that. Right? I, 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 I looked it up. I, I read it. I compared carefully. And the result of my comparison is that it, it doesn't really feel like it works real well to me. Um... Why did you do that, Dante? And it makes me wonder, is... Maybe it's not me that's muddled. Or rather, no, that's not quite right. Maybe it's not my fault that I'm muddled. Is he trying to muddle me? Is Dante having me on? And I don't mean he's making a joke. See, if Chaucer did this kind of thing, he'd be laughing at us, right? Like, Chaucer could write something like this, uh... And the, the sort of, you know, marginal commentary would be something like, made you look, right? Uh, Chaucer would find that hilarious. 
And it would be just like Chaucer to do that kind of thing. Um, and even to like make a joke at his own expense, right? To uh, make his own narrator seem really pompous and to be, and then to like you end up seeing through him and seeing that it's all kind of a joke in the first place, right? Like that would be that would be classic Chaucer to do that kind of thing. But not Dante, not in the same way. Right? Dante's not pulling a major look here, right? Um. Uh, so what is he pulling? What's going on? Is this a pattern? Do we see this? Um, I, um, I think there is, I think there is a pattern here. Um, and I think it's connected to that whole day we spent talking about Jerion. Um, remember how he was also doing the whole allegory, poetry, fraud thing, right? With Jerion. Um, you know, the whole me and my poem and Phaeton and Icarus thing, right? Which all seems to express anxiety, uncertainty, at least to kind of maybe erode confidence, our confidence. I wonder. Um, I got to give uh, props for this. I'd almost forgotten about it. Uh, recently, I've been um, I've been renovating the basement in which my office resides, and during the course of renovating the basement, I have come across of many many boxes that I didn't put away or throw away when I moved. One of which contained uh, many of my old notebooks, school notebooks. On the top of which was my old notebook from my undergraduate Dante class, the first time I ever read and studied Dante. Um, uh, John Kleiner was the name of my professor at Williams uh, who taught Dante, uh, a brilliant Dante scholar, um, really, really good reader. And um, uh, this was one of his overall theories that I didn't get at the time. I was not... Um, his theories were far too brilliant for me at that stage of my career. Uh, uh, and I think they're still beyond me, but uh, I, I mean, that is to say, I think he's, st I still think he understands Dante a very great deal more than I do. Um, but I, I think I see it now. Um, and that was that th this is a pattern. His claim was that this is a pattern in Dante. Dante does systematically, sort of undermine himself. Not completely, not like a don't trust me at all, pay no attention to me kind of way. Um, but there are lots of passages which kind of give us pause and which uh, Professor Kleiner uh, felt were designed to give us uh, pause. Uh, and I think that that's, um, that that's interesting. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, um, okay. Let's see. Let's keep going. They're free. The demons are all distracted. The Malabranche are all trying to fish each other out of the tar, right? Meanwhile, Dante and Virgil are left alone. And even as one thought springs from another, so that out, so out of that 
was still another born, which made the fear I felt before redouble. I thought, because of us, they have been mocked, and this inflicted so much hurt and scorn that I am sure they feel deep indignation. If anger is to be added to their malice, they'll hunt us down with more ferocity than any hound whose teeth have trapped a hare. I could already feel my hair curl up from fear, and I looked back attentively, while saying, Master, if you don't conceal yourself and me at once, they terrify me, those Malabranche. They are after us. So I imagine them. I hear them now. Okay. Tony asks, Is this a way for poet Dante to distance himself from character Dante? I love that theory, Tony. Yeah, that's exactly what I think. In the end, that's exactly what I think. Um, yes, yes. Um, and in that way, by the way, I think it's very like Chaucer. Different tone, different spirit entirely. I, you know, again, Dante... Um, <laughs> Dante and Chaucer are very different personalities, and I know which one I would rather go out to coffee with. But, um, uh, but, uh, but are they doing similar things? Do they do similar things like that? Do they, both of them tell long first person narratives, uh, in which they are not only the protagonists in a sense, but also the tellers of the story. Uh, and, um, do they both take, you know, adopt methods to differentiate themselves from the character yeah, I think I think so. I think so. Um, but anyway, back to um, uh, um, back to uh, Dante's fear here. Dante is terrified of the Melabranche. It's not going to surprise you to hear, because I've been confessing this on a practically weekly basis, that there's a lot that I don't understand in this passage. Here's the main theme that I don't understand. Or here's the main category of things I don't understand uh, in uh, these two cantos. And that is Virgil's reactions. The emotional intensity of these cantos. Dante expresses fear. I don't know what you expected, but I always expect Virgil to rebuke him for this, right? Um, uh, they're here under divine authority, right? We've seen there were demons who tried to mess with them before, right? And Virgil has defied them. Right now, once that didn't pan out, sure, they slammed the gate in his face and there was nothing he could do about it. And that was awkward for a little while, but still like a divine messenger came down and helped them out. Right. So they're going to be all right. Surely, probably. Right. I mean, unless by an unlucky chance, they happen to have tied their foot to a particularly malicious frog. Um Virgil did seem worried about Medusa. Jennifer, I agree. Um, yeah, no, I mean, again, there's, I'm not saying this is the only time or the first time that Virgil's reactions have confused me, but, um, but, you know, often, 
Dante gets rebuked by Virgil um, for this kind of thing, he's not going to rebuke him for this, right? He's worried. Dante's worried. Because of us, they have been mocked, and this inflicted so much hurt and scorn that I am sure they feel deep indignation. They have experienced hurt and scorn and so are going to return the hurt and scorn upon us. Boy, doesn't it sound like we're talking about the frog and the mouse again? Except in that parallel, now Dante and Virgil are the frog and the demons are the mouse. Right? We did this thing to them and they're going to do it back to us. Right? Um, well, golly, that's even more uncomfortable. Um, but they're not like a hawk or anything. They're like a hound. They'll hunt us with more ferocity than any hound whose teeth have trapped a hare. I could already feel my hair curl up from fear. I love that. Um, his reliance on Virgil seems fine. Virgil has seen him through all of these things, and Virgil has been doing a lot of there's been a lot of physical interaction, right? He's been shielding him from uh, the tale of Jerion on the flight down, right? Interposing his semi-corporeal body between Dante and the tail. He's been um, carrying him up and down, uh, you know, the walls. He's been, um, uh, you know, he's been, he's stepping forth while Dante was cowering behind a uh, behind a rock um, he's he he's now Dante says now you should you should hide me right um, yeah <laughs> Tony I don't think Virgil is the frog dragging him deeper into hell Virgil's the frog and Dante's the mouse and the demons are the hawk Oh, man. It gets worse every time. Keep in mind, different layers of allegory. We can do this multiple ways, right? They don't have to all agree with each other. But yikes. Um. <laughs> but that would mean that it would... That the intimacy between Dante and Virgil was uh, singularly unfortunate for Dante if Virgil is the frog. Uncomfortable. Um, now we add another layer, of course. He'd hardly finished telling me his plan. Um, that is, his plan is that they run real fast and jump up, jump down into the next, uh, into the next pit. He'd hardly finished telling me his plan when I saw them approach with outstretched wings, not too far off, and keen on taking us. My guide snatched me up instantly, just as the mother who is wakened by a roar and catches sight of blazing flames beside her will lift her son and run without a stop. She cares more for the child than for herself, not pausing even to throw on a shift, and down the hard embankment's edge, his back lay flat along the sloping rock that closes one side of the adjacent moat, he slid. No water ever ran so fast along a sluice to turn the wheels of a landmill, not even when its flow approached the paddles, as did my master race down that embankment while bearing me with him upon his chest, just like a son and not like a companion. Uh, 
Okay. So Virgil picks him up and runs with him, carrying him out like a son being carried carried out of a fire. Um. Okay. Um. All right. I guess I'll just start with the parts I understand least and move outwards from there. Why are, why is Virgil sliding like a water sliding along a sluice to turn the lands the wheels of a landmill? I did not see that simile coming. Um I mean, he's sliding along smoothly and quickly, I'm gathering from that. It's not that I don't see the physical connection, right, of like the the physical action that it's conveying. But again, the whole point of the epic simile, right, the whole point of the epic simile is that it builds out and develops a particular scene, a particular scenario, and and it basically juxtaposes the two of them, right? Um... Yeah. Um Carrie it exactly like a water slide. Right? Would Dante have used the epic simile of a water slide uh, uh had he lived to see water slides? Um uh Yeah. Um Not even when its flow approached the paddles. No water ever ran so fast along a sluice, not even when its flow approached the paddles. Meaning when it gets down towards the end of the sluice, I think that must be like when the water reaches its maximum speed along the sluice, because it would reach its maximum speed just as it approaches the paddles, because the paddles are going to slow it down, right? So he was sliding as fast as water slides downhill. Faster. Faster than water. Even the water sliding super fast, right before it gets to the paddles. Okay. That seems to me to... I think I can understand, again, like the literal thing he's describing um the thing that seems so so odd to me is the the pragmatic the functional nature like they're part of a machine i mean water doesn't just slide down a sluice for fun nor is it escaping from anything it's got a job Right, it is sliding down the sluice because it's doing a job, which is to to approach the paddles, right, to hit the paddles and to turn the paddles, right, in a landmill in order to do something else, utterly unrelated to the sliding of water, uh, which is turning the millstones, right. So, um, in what way does that landmill simile relate or connect in any way? to Dante and Virgil 
surf like Virgil Dante surfing down the wall of the pouch to get away from the demons who are pursuing them. I don't understand. I don't think I understand at all. Um... But here's another thing. The other thing about water sliding down a sluice very fast is that it's supposed to do it, right? It's been channeled into this sluice on purpose in order to have it build momentum um, so that it turns the wheel, right? Like it's... It's artificial. It's, it's, again, it's channeled in this way on purpose. He's not describing, I mean, like he could, for instance, he wants to describe water running fast. He could have said something like, as in a flash flood, when like water suddenly begins cascading really fast down a smooth hill, or, you know, like, I don't know, like something like that, right? A kind of a, but that would be a serendipitous flow of water. This is a completely unserendipitous flow of water. It's a totally pre planned flow of water um, that is, in fact, part of a larger machine part of a larger purpose that serves one role in a larger outcome. Are Dante and Virgil like that? Does this, is he suggesting that this scene, which looks serendip, they did not plan this in any way, right? They not, they didn't plan their getting sidetracked. They didn't, they didn't plan. This is a sudden spontaneous, uh, panicked flight on their part, Right. But in that sudden, unexpected, panicked flight in which Virgil is wildly extemporizing, right, uh, their course, uh, as it were, um, it turns out they're actually like water that has been carefully channeled, channeled down a sluice so that it turns the paddles of a landmill. Is this a reference to Providence? Is this a reference to uh, how this is all part of God's plan? I don't know. Um, that feels like a silly way to say it. But I feel like I'm on the... Uh, I feel like I'm on the right track. I don't know. Uh, at least, anyway, it's the best I've ever come up with. Um, but now... Back to the uh, the mother. Virgil's like a mother, and we get so we get another uh, epic simile. Just as the mother who is wakened by a roar and catches sight of blazing flames beside her will lift her son and run without a stop, she cares more for the child than for herself, not pausing even to throw on a shift and down the hard embankment's edge. Right, so that's that's the simile, right from. Uh, from the um, sudden waking of the mother in the night uh, to the fact that she's running out of the house naked with her child, not caring for herself, for her safety, for her modesty, thinking only of her child uh, and running out uh, into the night 
with her child. Um, first of all, the feminine imagery, the feminine imagery being used for Virgil here is interesting. Um, Virgil has been like a father to him before. Um, that he is like a mother to him now is interesting. I don't know what to do with it, but it's interesting. Um, the simile certainly emphasizes the panicked, so like resolution with resolution and decisive action within panic-inducing circumstances, sudden, unexpected, panic-inducing circumstances. Virgil is thinking on his feet, um, like the mother who spontaneously wakened by the house on fire in the middle of the night. Um, uh, the relentlessness, right? Um, running without a stop. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um... Here's the other thing. Like a son and not like a companion. This is Virgil we're talking about here. It's Virgil who is being compared to a parent who is desperately carrying a son out to save the son from the flames. If we are good medieval readers, what are we thinking of? Tony, I think that you were thinking about this a little bit earlier. What are we thinking of? It's another Aeneid quiz, for those of you who have never read the Aeneid. Um, uh, the story of the... Not the... It doesn't start in book one here, but the story of the Aeneid, which we don't hear until book two, I think it's book two, or is it book three? Book three? Maybe book three. Um, but the plot of the Aeneid begins in Troy, right? Troy in flames. Troy being destroyed by the Greeks. The Greeks have won. They have broken into the city. The city is on fire. And Aeneas has to escape. And he escapes with his son, his father, and not his wife. He starts off with his wife, his son, and his father, and he loses his wife. Uh, she gets lost and then killed along the way. But he escapes with his son and his father. Um, and yes, Sarah... Aeneas's father is missing. Sort of. Sort of. Um, how is Virgil carrying Dante? We, we get the description very clearly. Right? Virgil is sliding down the bank on his back. Right? Water slide position. Right? He's sliding down the bank and he's holding Dante. 
Now, it says that he snatched him up like a mother snatching up a child, right? Um, he says that bearing me with him upon his chest, just like a son and not a companion, right? In other words, I'm not next to him. I'm lying. I, he's lying on his chest. Are we to picture him... Um, holding him like like a baby across his chest or him like standing in front of him Virgil wrapping his arms around him from behind and then being like a you know uh, like the uh, two person luge event in the Winter Olympics right uh, with like the two of them lying like with Dante lying on top of Virgil and Virgil on his back sliding down um, see, now there's another epic simile that he could totally have made. Just as in the Winter Olympics, um, that would totally have worked. And Virgil is the sled in that case. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, I incline towards that view of this, that he's not cradling Dante in his arms like a baby but that he is holding Dante in front of, like, on, you know, in front of him and on top of him um, as he's sliding down protectively again, or like tandem parachuting, Tony. Absolutely. Though I think that's less of a direct epic simile than, uh, you know, the doubles luge, but, uh, but anyway, whatever. Um, so, okay. Um, Back to the Aeneid. There's a physical similarity with the escape from Troy. Right? But it's it's parallel, but it's weird. Aeneas holds his son by the hand. The physical posture is described with great care in the poem. He carries his, he holds his son by the hand. His son is ambulatory. Carries his son by the hand. Um, and his father, he carries on his back. He, Aeneas carries his father on his own back, right? That is Anchises, his aged papa, right? Puts his arms around Aeneas from behind, right? Around his arms. He carries him piggyback, his dad out of Troy. So he's escaping out of Troy with the generations passed on his shoulders and draped across his back, weighing him down and leading the future, his son by the hand, right? I mean, it's a very allegorical moment. Um, and his wife who was following behind is lost. Um, also a very allegorical moment, um, as the women folk, of Aeneas are fairly persistently um, connected allegorically with places, right? She is Troy, right? Um, she is Troy, his city that he is losing, right? And so, of course, she dies uh, in the fall of Troy. Um, but um, uh, physically, I wouldn't have thought of this if he hadn't actually talked about a parent taking a child 
out of a burning place, right? And the redoubled emphasis on just like a son, not like a companion. Um, you know, the parent-son relationship, right? I was like his son. He was like my parent, right? So he is like a child lying on the breast of his mother. We got the mother simile first. But it's also like, almost like an inversion of the Aeneas Anchises situation, where Anchises is on Aeneas's back, not because he's, you know, because he's, Aeneas is carrying him. Aeneas is bearing him, right? The same situation is happening. Now Virgil is behind Dante, like Anchises behind Aeneas, but instead of being born by him, he is bearing him. Instead of being shielded by him, he is shielding him as they are sliding down backwards, right? So it's, it's parallel to the father-son scene, tableau, famous father-son tableau from the Aeneid, um, but it's reversed, Yeah. Um, ah, uh, Casey James Roosh. Yeah, you uh, uh, you've read the Odyssey and the uh, Iliad, but never the Aeneid. Ah, well, you should. You should. We should get around to the Aeneid someday. Uh, uh, that's uh, it's worth reading. It's worth reading. Um, I don't. You know, it's not quite as much fun as Homer, but um, uh, but it's uh, the few people who have like. If you've read only the Iliad, are going to think Homer's all like you know, not going to necessarily know what I'm talking about. But he's he's not as much fun as Homer. But he's um, he's uh, uh, but but I mean you know, one of the most important authors, no question, in the entire Western tradition. Remember, he was everybody's most respected author for a thousand years. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, The protection. So that Virgil is being placed into a kind of a parental standpoint, parental position here again, is normal, common, understandable, right? Um, but um, we've seen that before. We've seen him have that posture towards him. This is a, a heroic action by Virgil, right? And yet, I don't know. I go back to the mouse and the frog. It doesn't end well for either the mouse or the frog. Um, and I can't imagine. I, again, I, I, I'm, I'm just I'm thinking about the parallel between Virgil and the mouse, and the demons and the frog. You should never have tied your foot to those demons, Virgil. Look what happened, right? They almost drowned you, right? They almost got you. They were going to throw them into the tar, right? They would have done had they caught them. Um, this is a heroic moment, but I also can't help but feel um, that this is 
a fairly significant moment of failure for Virgil as well. He gets out of it well, right? But he should never have gotten into it in this same way. Um, should he? Maybe I'm being harsh. I don't know. Let's keep going. Not covering myself with glory tonight in the covering passages. <laughs> but that was pretty clear from the beginning. Let's at least do one sin. Below that point, we found a painted people who moved about with lagging steps in circles, weeping, with features tired and defeated. And they were dressed in cloaks and cowls so low they fell before their eyes, of that same cut that's used to make the clothes for Clooney's monks. Outside, these cloaks were gilded and they dazzled, but inside they were all of lead, so heavy that Frederick's capes were straw compared to them. A tiring mantle for eternity. We turned again, as always, to the left, along with them, intent on their sad weeping, but with their weights that weary people paced so slowly that we found ourselves among a new company each time we took a step. Good, Devoris says, I'm reminded here both of the painted leopard and Jerion's painted hide. Good, yes. Uh, the painted people here, I, I especially the Jerion connection, Devora, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, they are painted, I think, much like Jerion was painted. Um, what's the sin? They're monks, right? Kind of like Clunaic monks, so like, you know, <laughs> say no more, if you know what I mean. But, uh, uh, what's the, what's the sin? What's the sin? Outside, those cloaks were gilded and they dazzled, but inside they were all of lead. Gold on the outside and lead on the inside. That'll be made a little bit more explicit after this, but hypocrisy, right? And this is one of the places, I think, where the relationship between the punishment and the sin is very, very clear, right? And once again, we find it not to be a reversal, but a perpetuation, right? The cloaks that they're wearing are merely a tangible, to them, uh, manifestation of the sin that they committed, right? The sin of hypocrisy. Um, to be shiny gold on the outside, but dull lead on the inside. Um, that's exactly it, Stephen. Whenever you're thinking about hypocrisy, if uh, the uh, Jesus's condemnation of the Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, uh, comes into your mind, you're on exactly the right track. That's just what you, that's the classic text about hypocrisy. Um, uh, and that's a particularly good one, Stephen. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Uh, you are like, uh, you are like whited sepulchers. Sorry, I love the King James. I can't help it. You are like whited sepulchers, which look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Yes, yes, um, yes, um, and yes, Tony, that's what I was talking about, about the Clunaic monks in particular. Um, hypocrisy, 
hypocrisy is to monks as simony is to popes, right? Um, that is to say, a bo both a characteristic and a prevailing sin, right? Um, uh, it is like, so just as simony is a sin which popes are sort of uniquely set up for. I mean, it's like... <laughs> Simony is a hard to sin, hard sin, hard sin for most people just to stumble into, right? Uh, rarely do you get a chance to just like you accidentally one day find yourself selling off spiritual things for money and, and you just you don't realize how it happened, right? Like it doesn't happen, it doesn't come up often, but it does for popes. Easy for that to happen for a pope, right? Um, same thing with monks and hypocrisy. And the reason for this uh, is this sort of cycle throughout the Middle Ages? You see this again and again and again. Um, a group of people say, "Hey, let's separate ourselves from society and live a life dedicated to poverty and fasting and hard work uh, and prayer and study and dedication to the Lord, away from all worldly concerns." And they do that, right? And then people round about look at them. Right. And they say, like, oh, those monks up there in, in, in the hills. Right. Who, they are very holy fellows. Right. I think we should support their work. Right. And I think it would clearly be a good thing for me. Right. It would be clearly but for me to make a large donation to benefit this monastery uh, because they're doing great work. And, and so it's clearly a, an advent, you know, a, a advantageous yet perhaps if you're that cynical but it's, it would certainly be a meritorious thing right for me uh, to make a large financial donation or a donation of some land they're farming up there right they could use some more farmland so I'll give them some more farmland right um, so you give them and then what happens and pretty soon these monks who separated themselves from society and swore oaths of poverty are fabulously wealthy because they've been getting all this stuff, right? And so eventually now, you know, years later, a couple generations later, right, the monks who were originally, you know, the, the tradition of these monks, which were traditional, which were originally like very admirably, you know, uh, living a life of poverty and separate, are now, you know, like uh, uh, wealthy and extravagant and living a decadent lifestyle. And somebody says, We've got to do something, right? This is not right. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a bunch of people and we're going to go off into the, into the wilderness and we're going to swear oaths of poverty and we're going to live separated. From, and, they, and, and the same cycle. You just see this happening again and again and again with monastic orders uh, in the Middle Ages. Um, you think that somebody... Uh, would have at some point said, okay, everybody, stop giving money to the monastic orders. You're not helping. That's the opposite of help, right? But uh, nobody said that. Um, so anyway, uh, that's it's So monks are defined. Monks are what are called, a, they are called the regular clergy. So you have the regular clergy uh, and you have the secular clergy. Uh, in the Middle Ages, and neither one of these things mean anything. What mean what you think they mean, right? Um, uh, you'd think that the regular clergy means like the normal clergy, right? Like your parish priest, um, and the secular clergy. I don't even know what they are, right? Clergy that don't swear oaths that are like part of the, you know, no. The the secular clergy is your that's your parish priest. The secular clergy are the clergy whose job is to interact with the world. So like the 
parish priest who interacts with the parish, right? That's the secular. The regular clergy are those who follow the reguli, rules, right? Those who have sworn to follow a set of rules. Monks, nuns, friars, those are regular clergy. So monks are regular in this way. Um, and um, uh, they, so that, that is, they're defined by their following of their rules, and their rules always include poverty, oaths of poverty. And yet monasteries all, almost always ended up, at least, you know, the good ones almost always ended up getting rich. So that's why I say hypocrisy, big monastic issue. And that's why, in particular, they're being compared to the Cluniac monks, the monks, the monks of Cluny, which is the place in France where that monastery was located. And um, uh, because at this time, they were the really rich ones. And so that's why, you know, uh, the cut of the, like, the golden, shiny outside of their, looks like a, it looks like the fancy robes that uh, those wealthy Cluniac monks uh, um, wear. Um, yes, you're right, Jocelyn. I guess Henry VIII did have kind of a solution to that problem, didn't he? Um, uh, <laughs> it's it's a, a rather a Gordian knot kind of solution <laughs> to, the, to the monastic cycle, isn't it? Uh, I'm not sure that anybody in the end was happy with it. But it did, it did I guess, solve the problem in one way. Sorry, for those of you who don't understand the reference, Henry VIII dissolved all of the monasteries in England and seized all of their wealth for himself, uh, thereby breaking the cycle, no question. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> anyway, okay. Um, Right, right. Uh, Tomas says, luckily, we also had the Vikings to come and empty those monasteries of their vain riches. Yeah, no, they also, I don't think we're really primarily helping uh, in the spirit of, uh, you know, civic duty. But, um, uh, but yes, yes. Um, uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, Casey, you're, you're right. Uh, the most notable example would be the poor Knights of Christ, uh, who the guys who invented the modern banking. Uh, yeah, the Knights Templar. Exactly. Right, right. Yep. Um, yep. Okay. Um, but as I say, the link between the sin and the punishment here, um, the interior, like the, the, the actual, like the, the superficially, they look like they're made of gold, but really they're made of lead uh, and they are weighed down. Of course, if there's one thing lead and gold have in common, it's that they're both really heavy. Uh, and so I think that that's actually an interesting thing. The, 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 um, the, the cloaks themselves are, um, the cloaks themselves are, are, they resemble, they represent the sin, but both parts of the sin, right? Both the, uh, um, you know, the, 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 the interior uncleanness and the outer whitewashing both contribute to the punishment, right? They're both, it's all like the, and it's, uh, it's all, it's all part of the same cloak that weighs them down. Um, uh, and I think that that's, that that's, uh, that's a really interesting thing. Um, a tiring mantle for eternity. Notice that here Dante is differentiating himself 
from the sinners. We've been noticing a pattern that Dante, in some ways, physically, like his description of his own physical actions, ends up paralleling himself uh, to the uh, uh, to the sinners. Right here, he's differentiating himself. Well, a little bit. Can't help but remember one thing. Silent, alone, no one escorting us, we made our way, one went before, one after, as friars minor when they walk together. Virgil and Dante are compared to friars minor, um, Franciscan friars, um, walking in single file. Um, now, friars are not monks, it's a different thing. Um, but there is a kind of, and that's how they're walking, right? They're walking around, you know, uh, like that in file. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and they're moving, and they, so they, there they are walking along next to the sinners, um, having already been walking, looking kind of anticipating the walk of the sinners earlier on. So maybe we do still get that parallel again. But they're way faster. With every step, they overtake a new company. All right. I was super digressive tonight, but I don't apologize. Um, I say here as I say in every class I do. Life is too short to go quickly. Um, so, but we'll leave it here. We'll come, we'll come back. <laughs> Having done half a canto, hooray! We'll come back to 23, finish up 23 super fast, and then we'll do 24. We'll get to snakes and move on. Uh, so there we go. Um, thanks, everybody, for joining me tonight, uh, and I will see you guys again next week. Bye now.